Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Marosa, who's going to read the scripture today uh, in Tagalog, and then Pastor Justin Dorr will give us a teaching based upon that passage. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us through the book of uh, Job, chapters 15, 18, 20, and chapter 27. Chapter 15. Nagsalita si Eliphaz, sumagot si Eliphaz na tagateman. Ang sinasabi mo ay bunga ng iyong kasamaan, at dinadaya mo ang iba sa pamamagitan ng iyong mga sinasabi. Hindi na kailangang hatulan pa kita, dahil ang iyong mga sinasabi mismo ang magpapatunay laban sa iyo. Akala mo ba ikaw ang unang isinilang? Ipinanganak ka na ba na bago nilikha ang mga bundok? Narinig mo na ba ang mga plano ng Diyos? Ikaw lang bang marunong? Ano bang alam mo na hindi namin alam? At ano ang naunawaan mo na hindi namin naunawaan? Job 18 Pagkatapos, sumagot si Bildad na taga-Shua. Hob, hanggang kailan ka ba magsasalita ng ganyan? Ayusin mo ang sinasabi mo at saka kami makikipag-usap sa iyo. Ang tingin mo ba sa amin ay para kaming mga hayop na hindi nakakaunawa? Sinasaktan mo lang ang sarili mo dahil sa galit mo. Ang akala mo ba ay dahil lang sa iyo pawabayanan ng Diyos ang mundo o ililipat niya ang mga bato mula sa kinaroroonan nila? Pagkatapos sumagot si Zophar na taga na ama. Tiyak ko alam mo na mula pa noon, nung unang panahon, simula ng likain ang tao ng, sa mundo, ang ligaya ng tao, taong masaya, masama ay sandali lang. Totoong hindi nagtatagal ang kasiyahan ng taong hindi naniniwala sa Diyos. Mawawala ang kanyang kayamanan sa kadiliman. Susunugin siya ng apoy na hindi tao ang nagpaningas, pati na ang lahat ng naiwan sa kanyang tirahan. Ihahayag ng langit ang mga kasalanan niya at sasaksi naman ang lupa laban sa kanya. Tatangayin ng baha ang bahay niya sa araw na ibuus ng Diyos ang kanyang galit. Iyan ang kapalaran ng taong masama ayon sa itinakda ng Diyos sa kanya. Job 27 Nagpatuloy na magsalita si Hob. Sumusumpa ako at sa makapangyarihan at buhay na Diyos na nagkait ng katarungan at nagdulot sa akin ng samanan loob. Habang ako'y may hininga at pinapahintulo niyang mabuhay, hindi ako magsasalita ng masama at kasinungalingan. Hinding-hindi ko matatanggap na tama kayo. Ipipilit ko pa rin na wala, kayong kasala, wala akong kasalanan hanggang sa mamatay ako. Ipaglalaban kong tama ako at hindi ako titigil. Malinis ang aking konsensya habang ako'y nabubuhay. Ang salita ng Diyos, the Word of God. Thanks be to God. So one of my uh, favorite passages of the Bible is uh, in John 6, uh, toward the end of the chapter, after Jesus has uh, taught a on a very difficult subject, uh, it tells us that at, at some point, his followers who had heard this very hard teaching, uh, they really struggled with it, and as a result of struggling with it, they decided to turn away uh, and not follow him anymore. Uh, and after this turning away, Jesus then turns to his 12 disciples and he says, what about you? Do you all want to leave me now? And in response to this, Peter, he 
responds with something that's actually pretty meaningful uh, to me and resonates a lot with me. Um, you might think that Peter, who was always this very confident, kind of hot-headed individual, might say something very confident uh, to Jesus's question, like, of course we do, let's go, Lord. But instead, he simply replies, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You hold the words of eternal life. I think what most resonates with me about that interaction is the realization of Peter that in the midst of uncertainty about Jesus' teaching on this very difficult topic, uh, and as many turn away from Jesus, uh, I really hear Peter's words as simply, I don't get everything that you just said. I'm not sure that I'll ever fully understand all that you're teaching, but Lord, where else can I go? To whom else should I go? You have words of eternal life. The reason why that resonates so much with me is because there's a very real tension in that question that Peter gives. Where else should I go? And there are many topics and teachings of Jesus all throughout uh, his ministry and throughout his word that are, that are difficult. There are many different topics and teachings that as a result of those topics and teachings have caused some to turn away, to walk away from Jesus, believing that it's better to leave him than to, in some way, submit to the things that he claims or that he believes. And amongst the many topics that could be put in front of us that question the validity of Jesus and all that he claims is the reality of suffering in this world. The presence and the pervasiveness of suffering has always been a challenging reality. When claiming the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, a God of love and a, a, um, a world of suffering so often for us feels like water and oil. It just doesn't seem like they actually mix. Now today we are going to continue our Lent series, a series that we've been calling A Public Witness, Lessons in Suffering. Uh, and over the course of this series, we've, uh, we've been considering what to make of suffering and we've been trying to see what we can learn even in the midst of that ongoing suffering. And today, we address the very real tension of a good God and a world of suffering. And so to wrestle with that, to wrestle with that tension, let's see uh, in our passage, our passages, a, logic, a logical conclusion, a faulty premise, and an eternal hope. Okay, let's look at those quickly. So first, a logical conclusion. So to start, let's just quickly recap where we've been so far uh, in the book of Job. So Job, he is this righteous man who's been targeted by Satan because of his righteousness. Uh, in the opening chapters of the book, there's this conversation between Satan and God, and Satan basically says, listen, the only reason Job uh, follows you and is righteous is because you have blessed him with all these earthly blessings. But if you were to take all those things away from him, he would curse you. And after this conversation, God then allows Satan to test Satan, or to test Job rather in this way. And uh, Satan comes and he brings this suffering upon Job's life. But God keeps Satan on a leash and doesn't allow him to just do whatever. And so he tells him that he's not allowed to kill Job. Now, as a result, Job loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. All of it is gone. His suffering is so great that even Job's wife in chapter 2 tells him to curse God and die. Thanks, babe. I'm sure that was very encouraging. <laughs> but the whole plot, right, the whole story is Satan's attempt 
to drive this righteous Job to curse God. But if Job's wife wasn't discouraging enough, Job then has three friends that come uh, who try to make sense of the suffering that Job is experiencing. And so for 30 plus chapters, we see these cycles of conversation between Job and his friends uh, and Job between Job and God, uh, all while getting silence from God. God does not speak the vast majority of the book of Job. Now, this, these conversations that Job is having with his friends, in essence, Job's friends are uh, arguing, listen, God is righteous. He punishes the wicked. He brings justice against the unjust. And so, if you are suffering, it's because you have sinned. So, what have you done, Job? You see their confronting words in the various passages that I uh, just clipped for you. Let me just give you a little bit of a, um, an overview of what I mean. So in verse, in, I'm sorry, in chapter 15, uh, after Job has defended himself, we see uh, the words of Eliphaz. Right? This is the friend that we looked at last week. Eliphaz gets angry with Job for denying his reasoning. I mean, look at verse uh, 9, chapter 15. Eliphaz says, what do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? Basically, who do you think you are to deny, Job, my obvious logic? God punishes the wicked. You are clearly being punished. Ergo, you are wicked. Then in chapter 18, you have Bildad. He comes on the scene, uh, and he too is annoyed with Job's constant defense of his righteousness. In verse 2 of chapter 18, it says, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Basically saying, Job, you're being ridiculous. Stop all this non these nonsensical speeches. When you're ready to be reasonable and listen to our logical arguments, then we can talk. And then in chapter 20, Zophar comes and he reiterates this argument. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Surely you know how it has been from old, ever since mankind was placed on this earth, that the mirth or the, the amusement or laughter of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. In other words, you had your amusement, you had your laughter, you had your moments of joy, but because you were obviously wicked, God has brought wrath against you. These guys, these friends are hammering this guy. Now, last week we considered that there's often one of two regular responses to suffering that we often have, both of which are actually rooted in this logic that we're seeing from these friends, uh, specifically that uh, innocent people do not suffer or should not suffer. Therefore, one logical conclusion is that if you do suffer, it's because you deserve it. And last week we considered uh, that to be an absolutely wrong assumption, that suffering will befall all of us and even Jesus the only truly, perfectly innocent and righteous one also suffered. But our hope is that in stepping into our suffering, Jesus reveals God's plans to end all suffering and restore all that suffering has taken away. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to listen uh, online. But now, in Job's response to his friends, we actually see another seemingly logical conclusion to the argument that his friends are making. If God is righteous and just, and in that righteousness, he punishes the wicked, but Job is claiming that he's innocent and not worthy of suffering, then the other logical conclusion is that, well, God then must not be just. I mean, look at uh, chapter 27. Job says this, uh, and Job continued his discourse, as surely as God lives, 
Who has denied me justice? The Almighty who has made my life bitter. In other words, God has not given me proper justice. God has made my life bitter. And then he goes on to say in uh, verse 5, I will never admit you are right till I die. I will deny... I." I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. What we're seeing here is Job is really wrestling with the reality that he has been righteous, undeserving of such suffering. And in his lament, he shows us a little bit behind the curtain of what he's thinking, what in his claim here, that God has denied him true justice by allowing the suffering. And Job's actually been wrestling uh, with this idea, the, uh, wrestling with the idea of the goodness and the justice of God all throughout the book. Uh, we haven't, of course, been able to get to every single chapter, but in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and 10 and 13 and 16 and 19 and 23, you see similar kinds of statements. Job is uh, either insinuating or just straight up accusing God of bringing calamity on him, even though he didn't deserve it. And this logic is incredibly common logic. It still runs very much through our contemporary discourse when we consider suffering. Again, the logic seems simple. If God is good and just, but there is suffering and evil in the world, then either God must not exist, or if he does, he must, not be, he must be unjust and uncaring. But a good God cannot exist if there is evil in the world. But that seemingly logical conclusion, I want to argue, is actually based on a very false premise, a very faulty premise. Let's consider that. So an all-powerful God, right, this is essentially the argument uh, many would hold, that an all-powerful God cannot exist in a world where millions of people die from a virus, where tens of thousands of people die in earthquakes, where tyrannical desperates in, invade uh, sovereign lands of neighboring countries, where human trafficking enslaves the vulnerable, and so much more. Right? We can all imagine some pretty horrible things. How does a good God exist in a world like that? But even though we can imagine some pretty awful things, I actually want to first start and just say... Uh, all the suffering that you can imagine is not actually nearly the amount of suffering that actually exists and occurs at any given moment. Our brains can't possibly comprehend the suffering that is taking place at every second of every day. Richard Dawkins, who's the, the famous evolutionary biologist and cultural critic and, of course, atheist, he illustrated this reality uh, years ago in his book, River Out of Eden, uh, he's making this point, and he says, he says this. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of salvation thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. 
In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. Let me just pause there for a minute. He is so right. In fact, for many, the existence of, of a good God is impossible based sheerly on their own experiences of suffering, which speaks nothing of the suffering that exists in a magnitude that we cannot fathom. But even though that's true, to Dawkins' point, suffering, the suffering that actually exists, again, is far worse than we could possibly imagine, which all the more seems to prove the point, and this is his point, that the existence of a good God is not possible. But that's not all that Dawkins says. He goes on, and he goes on uh, to double down, and in doubling down on that idea, he actually reveals a problem with his logic. He actually provides us a very faulty premise. This is what he says. Again, he says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, others are going to get lucky. And the reason being, here's what he says, you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, no nothing, but pit a pitiless indifference. In other words, in a universe void of God, there is absolutely, one of the seemingly absolutely logical conclusions to all of this is that if there is no purpose, no evil, no good, no nothing but pitiful indifference, uh, then if that's, if that's true, he would be wrong. But consider the reality of this notion of purpose and meaning. He is looking at purpose and meaning from a perspective of suffering. But to see why he is wrong, we need to consider this whole notion of purpose and meaning, not from the perspective of how things are in the world, but rather how things ought to be. And this is what I mean. Here's the whole point. If there is no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless existence, indifference in this world, and that is why we suffer, would it not also be the case that anything that we hold to be true and good, anything that we think gives our life purpose, those things also don't actually mean anything. There is no purpose in any of those things. But here's the thing. Suffering, in many ways, is suffering precisely because it takes away the very thing in which we find meaning in life, things that we find valuable. I mean, think about it. We grieve sickness because health is valuable. We grieve injustice because justice is valuable. We grieve poverty and death because people are valuable. Right? The very premise of suffering assumes that there are things in this life worth living for. There are good things. And when those things are taken or destroyed or oppressed, that is why we suffer. Job suffered because his children were valuable. The fruits of his labor had been valuable. His health and his ability to live without ailments, all of it was valuable. And no one, even Dawkins, can truly live like his words are true, that there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, no nothing but pitiless existence. His very statements about suffering prove that is the case. Because there is suffering, there must be a standard of existence 
to which that suffering is compared. And so let's just for a moment then assume that your life has meaning and purpose. Let's just assume that there are things in life that are valuable and that are worth living for. Assume that love and justice and family and health and life are meaningful. Where does that meaning come from? Well, from a, a biblical perspective, the reason suffering exists at all is because there is a standard of existence without suffering that is hardwired into our very being. We know that in some way, things are not the way they should be. Right? We love because love is a real thing. We long for justice because justice is a real thing. We grieve death because life is a real thing. And love and justice and life are meaningful to us because there is one who created those realities to be our reality. And the reason why we so naturally gravitate toward them for meaning is because, as Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 reminds us, we're made in the image of God, the one from whom all other aspects of life find their source. And so with that said, if, it, if it's true that God is just and loving and the source of all life, the question that we have to wrestle with is why is that not our reality? Why do we not actually experience those things in a permanent kind of way? Why does suffering exist? Well, last week we considered the fact that we are in desperate need of something that we call multi-perspectivalism, if you were here. But essentially, we need to see reality from various perspectives if we're going to have a proper understanding of reality. And in that vein, we need to go back to the very beginning of Job. We need to remember that the very premise of this book's perspective on suffering is that suffering is not connected to the creative intentions of God, but the, the destructive intentions of Satan. God did not create a world void of love and justice where windstorms kill families or poverty befalls uh, us unexpectedly or where sickness and death are ever present before us. These are not reflections of God's creative intent, but the consequences of a world fractured by the effects of sin. And when we start from that premise, we can then see suffering more clearly we then begin to see suffering not as a feature of the world in which we live, but rather a glitch or a, a degradation of the world in which we live. It begins to open our eyes to realize that there's something to actually see beyond the suffering. C.S. Lewis uh, famously, he made a statement, that, uh, a statement that's actually often misquoted, but he, he said this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because... I'm sorry, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. In other words, he understands Christianity to be that which helps us see what is actually happening, what is actually going on in the world, and that is the exact point of suffering. When we question the goodness and justice of God, it's interesting that we are actually using the tools that God himself provides us to know that which is good and just. It's like standing in the shadow of a tree, denying uh, and rejecting the existence of a sun because at that moment, all you experience is darkness. But we know that the shadow is present only because there is a sun that is providing light and suffering exists. Not because there is no loving, good, and just God who is indifferent to our suffering. Rather, suffering exists precisely because 
There is a loving and good and just God, and we are experiencing the consequences of a world that have been fractured by our rejection of him. The Christian perspective brings us not only clarity about suffering, but to Lewis's point, it actually provides us vision to see everything around us with greater clarity, including suffering. Which brings me finally then, the ultimate true clarity that we are actually supposed to be able to see through suffering. And that provides us, finally, an eternal hope. I started uh, today reminding us of John 6, uh, the passage where, again, Jesus is um, sharing these difficult things, and as a result, he's having his followers, uh, some of his followers reject him after he taught on the subject. But let me share with you some of what Jesus taught. I want to put in front of you what made some walk away from him. And I have it, I think I have it anyway, up in, uh, uh, for you. In verse 37, chapter uh, John 6, verse 37, says this, Jesus says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall uh, lose none of, the, uh, none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And he goes on to say, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And then he goes on uh, much more about this notion and then finally concludes in, in verse 36. He said, from this, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus then, again, this is where he turns to his 12 disciples, and he says, do you too want to leave me? And Peter says, Lord, where else should we go? shall we go? You hold the words of eternal life. My friends, I have been trying to make the case that Job and his friends are wrong to connect suffering to the character of God as if God's justice and goodness are on trial in some way. Rather, that we should see the lack of goodness and justice pervasive in the world as the reason for the beliefs in a standard of goodness and justice. We know things are not the way they should be. And while we might want to debate and argue the validity of that assertion, what we see in John 6 is Jesus making a claim that proves my point. He says in verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has, uh, those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus Christ actually came to prove to us the goodness and the justice and the righteousness and the love of the Father. What we're seeing here in John 6 is Jesus reminding us that God is not indifferent to our plight, but rather he's so committed to restoring all that suffering has taken away that in Jesus, God steps into this world of suffering, becomes a light piercing the darkness, and because death itself is the fullest and most complete consequence of the suffering of this life, Jesus says, for those who rest in me, even death has no power, for I have come to bring eternal life. Jesus 
proves that Job and his friends are wrong about suffering. But here's the thing that strikes me about John 6, is that there are two groups of people in John 6 that hear these words. There's one group of people, the 12 disciples, who hear these promises, they accept them, and they realize, yes, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? And seriously, Jesus is claiming to be the key to eternal life. Where else does one go? And Jesus proves that he is that key to eternal life by his resurrection. And so you have these 12 disciples represented, those who trust him, trust that his promises are true. But then there are others who hear these words and they walk away. They hear Jesus talking about some very difficult things. And instead of trusting in him, resting in him, embracing this promise of eternal life that he gives, they are those who, like Job's friends, claim that they have greater wisdom or greater understanding about what is being presented. And instead of trusting Jesus, they walk away. And for us today, this issue of suffering is before us, and there are going to be two groups of people. Those who see suffering, recognize suffering as not being the true ultimate reality that we experience now. Realize that Richard Dawkins is wrong and that Jesus has the words of eternal life, and so we trust and rest in Jesus. And that suffering actually moves us closer to him. But there are others here who might look at the issue of suffering and instead of moving toward the one with eternal life, walk away, believing that there is no purpose, there is no evil, there is no good, there is nothing but pitiless indifference in the words of Dawkins. But my friends, particularly those of you who may be leaning away from Jesus as opposed to moving toward him as a result of suffering, I want you to hear Jesus' words that he is the one who holds the key to eternal life. And it's in his resurrection, the power of his resurrection, where he proves that is true. And while I don't have all the answers as to why God allows particular kinds of suffering to befall us, what I do know is that it certainly is not because he doesn't care. And it's in Jesus that we see how deeply he does care by bringing us into eternal life, crushing the ultimate suffering, which is death. And so for those who are suffering today, I trust that these words of Jesus, I pray that you will hear these words of Jesus and find hope and rest in that reality. That your suffering is not part of God's good design, but it is the result of something else, but that through our suffering, he still might be glorified in us, particularly when he restores and redeems the cosmos. Your suffering is proof that things are not the way that they should be. But for those of you here who have not yet trusted in the words of Jesus, I pray that you do. Because Dawkins is wrong. There is a design. There is a purpose. There is, a, there is good that exists. And suffering, and uh, the suffering that we all experience, again, proves that that is the case. And Jesus Christ proves the extent to which God is restoring his creation to the way that it should be. One of fullness of life. I pray that gives us all great hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we are a people that suffer. And even today, as we are reminded of the incredible suffering that we've all collectively experienced over the last several years, three years uh, since 
that Sunday when our church had to first shut down as a result of the pandemic. Lord, we are all very familiar with suffering. And it can be difficult at times to um, understand why you would allow such things to befall us. It's hard to understand why you did not intervene. And Lord, you don't promise us answers to all of those questions. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that the suffering that does exist is suffering because it is not the way things should be. It is suffering because you desired something greater that we have yet to experience. Suffering actually reminds us that your promises are true because there is something greater on the other side of that suffering. And as we trust in Jesus, we begin to get glimmers of hope, glimmers of that reality of what is to come. And so I pray that you would help us all to trust in him more fully, rest in him more fully, and like the disciples, recognize where else can we go? For Jesus holds the words of eternal life. Help us rest in those words. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.